Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I mean, it's all that stuff that you watch in movies that you don't think really happened, happened in Fort Myers. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And welcome to our last episode of our three-part series on Michelle and Stephen Andrews, a 28-year-old couple who was murdered in their home in Gateway, Florida on December 27th of 2005. And we still have our two first degrees with us who are intertwined in this case from the start to finish. And honestly, I commend any of our firsties that have waited this long until today to listen to all three episodes in succession because that's that's a hard one that is hard but i understand that plight so good on you for the self-control yeah we love the self-control and we hope that it was worth it but uh billy what day is it today today is january 20th it's a very big day for one reason which we'll get to in a second but it's also national cheese lovers day oh yes well i'll ask both of you your girl over here is a cheesemonger. Should we all say our favorite cheeses? Yes. Okay. I'll go first. Goat cheese. Well, I have several favorites. Um, I like hot brie with like honey and like a Pillsbury, oh, yes. if you wrap it in Pillsbury, like crescent rolls. And then, so that's that. A baked brie. A baked brie is incredible. But Jacqueline, we've bonded over so many burratas, you know? Oh my God. I forgot about burrata. And then I love like a Monterey Jack and a taco or a quesadilla. Mm, mm. I love like a Gruyere. I mean, I, it just goes – I love Fontina. I mean, it just goes on and on. I know. It really does go on and on. I mean, just a good ch- – oh, you know, unexpected cheddar from Trader Joe's is one of my favorite cheeses to put on our charcuterie mm. board. It is unexpectedly delicious. Yes. Well, best day of 2021 so yes. far for sure. Billy, do you eat cheese or is that one of the weird things you don't eat? I do eat cheeses, okay. yes. A smoked Gouda would probably be my favorite cheese. Mm, okay. Everybody go have a nice cheese board today. I think that, you know, it's, yes. it's time to celebrate. Because you can also celebrate because it's inauguration day. Yes. Yeehaw, motherfucker. The time couldn't have come soon enough. So we're recording no. this a little bit early. I hope it has been a Decent good day. day. Otherwise, yes. Yes. sorry for yes. the jovial, lighthearted talk. <laughs> yes. If something bad Fingers happens. 
Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Last week, we left off with the arrest of 30-year-old Fred Cooper, who was taken into custody and charged for the murders of Michelle and Stephen Andrews. Cooper's girlfriend, Kelly, was involved in an affair with Stephen Andrews, who was found killed by a single bullet to the head while he slept, and his wife, Michelle, had been beaten and strangled to death. The arrest came down the heels of a two-week investigation, and the nail in the coffin for Cooper was when his DNA was found under Michelle's fingernails. Cooper's arrest elicited shock and confusion. People couldn't understand some of the strange circumstances of this double murder. If Stephen was the target of Cooper's rage, then why was he the one who received one shot in the head while he was sleeping? Why was he spared the brutal terrorizing death that Michelle was objected to? Even more curious, if Cooper was capable of such evil, why did he return the following morning to call 911, seemingly on behalf of the couple's two-year-old son, Lucas? And finally, what was Cooper's girlfriend's Kelly Bellew's role in all of this? So many questions. And luckily for our inquiring minds, Fred Cooper pleaded not guilty after he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder and burglary. And this meant that there would be a trial where all the evidence in the case would be presented. It took nearly three years for the trial to commence, and Cooper was facing the death penalty. In the 33 months since the Andrews had been killed, there had been vast national press coverage. And because of this, Cooper's defense had made multiple attempts to have the judge sign off on a change of venue for the trial. He argued that the media coverage would make it impossible for Cooper to have a fair trial. But the Lee Circuit judge rejected the motion. And while the change of venue requests were denied, it was decided that the jurors would be sequestered and cordoned off from the public and media coverage throughout the duration of the trial. As both the prosecution and defense were gearing up for the trial, Lisa and her family were mentally preparing for it as well. And that's because Lisa's son, Ben, had been subpoenaed to testify for the prosecution. As a reminder, Ben had been walking with a friend when they saw a strange man walking in their gated community neighborhood on the evening that Michelle and Stephen Andrews had been killed. And Ben and his friend provided a description of the person they had seen to the police. The man they saw had short hair, small goatee, and dark eyes. He was wearing a camouflage jacket, and he was carrying a backpack. And when Ben saw this man and they locked eyes, the man put the hood to his camo sweatshirt or jacket over his head and kept walking. Ben's description of this man was a spot-on match to that of Fred Cooper. Ben and his friend were seniors in high school by the time the trial began, and Lisa recalls the prosecution preparing them for the trial, where her son would soon have to face accused double murderer Fred Cooper. It was nice because they were young, even though they are now seniors in high school, they walked them through everything. They told them how everything was going to happen. They took them into the courtroom, kind of primed them with these are the questions. And then court TV, they came and filmed it, the whole trial. So it, you know, kind of became a little media thing again. 
So with the presence of court TV in the courtroom, the trial would and did turn into a media spectacle. And the whole thing was understandably nerve wracking, especially for Lisa, who had to watch her teenage son testify in this double murder trial as the nation watched. If you Google Fred Cooper, you can see that he's very intimidating looking. At the time, he had a shaved head, dark, glaring eyes that seemed sort of sunken in, and an unusually thick neck. That's just my opinion. It's an odd thing to be in the same room as a man accused of perpetrating such horrific acts. Meg and Lisa both attended the trial. Here's Meg. And if you remember, Meg is Lisa's daughter. It was just really creepy, just kind of being like a younger girl. It was really kind of surreal being in the same room as somebody that you know was capable of that. Lisa had thoughts, too. I mean, he was creepy, and that's what Ben said that night. He said he has weird eyes. He has those mean eyes. His eyes are what get you, and he's just staring. The trial began on October of 2008, and on the first day, the prosecution played that chilling 911 call that was made during the morning hours of December 27th of 2005. The 911 call that acted as the catalyst to this whole case. The 911 call that attracted media attention from across the country. And when the call played, it was mostly silent. The only audible words that could be heard were that of the dispatcher as she repeatedly asked for information and she was met without response. At the tail end of the call, you can hear Lisa's police officer friend Tracy knocking on the door, and then two-year-old Lucas Andrews calls out, Mommy, Mommy. The prosecution had a solid theory, and they had evidence to back it up. Law enforcement believed that somehow Fred Cooper had learned of the affair his girlfriend Kelly Ballou had become entangled with her co-worker Stephen Andrews. They believed that it was around Christmas that Cooper had uncovered the affair somehow. They believed that he had long suspected the affair, but then around Christmas, this was the final straw. And remember that Meg, which is one of our first degrees, had actually seen Stephen Andrews leaving the house he shared with his family on the evening of December 26th, only hours before he was killed. And during the course of the investigation, it was revealed that when Meg saw Stephen leaving, he was actually going to meet Kelly at their office for sex. They met there at 8.45 p.m., And it was later revealed that Cooper had actually been home on their shared computer at 8.30 p.m. when Kelly left to meet Stephen. So perhaps Cooper had learned of this rendezvous. If so, the timing of the murders would certainly line up. Within the course of the police investigation, law enforcement had uncovered plenty of evidence of this affair, all of which would be presented in court and in the media. It all started with emails. Here's Lisa. I guess there were emails and Steve was going to leave Michelle. They were going to start a new life together. And here's Meg. I mean, every email between Stephen and Kelly was leaked in the newspaper. And there was never anything that linked Michelle to Fred. So as reported by the Fort Myers News Press, Stephen had actually emailed Kelly after he had sex with her at their office and only hours before he and Michelle had been killed. The email said, can't sleep. I'm going to go to bed now. Talk soon. But emails prior to that one painted a picture of a passionate affair and a man who was considering leaving his wife. One email wrote, quote, I can't wait until we can be in our own home and not have to sneak out to be with each other. And here's an excerpt from a December 16th email from Stephen to Kelly. I feel so calloused from being so taken for granted. And then you come along and make everything so fucking awesome. How can I ignore that? I think it would be convenient to stick around, but that isn't good enough for me. 
I feel selfish for saying it, but I want to feel wanted. All I've been thinking about lately is how I want to be the one you wake up with. I want to travel to new places with you. I want to make love all night long and stroll on the beach and have coffee in bed. Kelly's response, quote, I hope you do decide to walk away and start anew as opportunities don't present themselves often. When you pass them by, that's usually it. Part of me says this is because I really care about you. And the other part is selfishness because I really want to take a chance on us. And here's a particularly interesting email from December 19th from Stephen to Kelly. It says, quote, I think ever since Michelle cheated, I've had my guard up. The gradual deterioration of trust takes its toll. I don't want to be hurt again. I have too much good to give, and I want to make the best of the one life that I have. In spite of living with Michelle, who is laying it on thick right now and only seeing you for a short five-minute spurts throughout business hours, I still feel everything for you. Ignoring that would be pure ignorance. So if you recall from our last episode, it was on Christmas that Michelle actually set the record straight in terms of this cheating that Stephen is referencing. Michelle had actually been raped by a coworker, but she was too ashamed or too scared to tell anybody the truth about that. So she said that she cheated. And during the trial, all the evidence of Kelly and Stephen's relationship went on display. And there were countless emails like the ones we've recounted. Eventually, Kelly herself took the stand. And it's no surprise that her testimony was much anticipated. And we can't get into everything Kelly said, and heads up may seem like we're bouncing around here, but we really are just trying to hit the highlights. Kelly said that she didn't think her boyfriend Cooper was the jealous type. Although she did recount that one night after she had already told Cooper that she wanted to end the relationship. It was 11 p.m. Kelly said of the interaction, quote, Steve had just texted me to ask me to check my email. So I got up to check my email and Fred got up and started yelling and saying, who the fuck is that? And who is calling you? Kelly later testified about how Cooper had threatened suicide after she had officially pulled the plug on their relationship. I was afraid of what he might do, she said. When she was asked to explain what she meant, she explained a scenario where Cooper grabbed a gun from their closet and ran downstairs with it, making threats of self-harm. Kelly threatened to call the police. Following the incident, he apologized over and over, and he said he couldn't live without her, and later said that he had thrown the gun in a river. Kelly also described how the day before the murders, she and Cooper had a talk, and Kelly asked him to be respectful whenever she decided to move on. Mind you, they were officially split up by this point. Cooper responded and said he'd deal with it. Kelly also testified that Stephen had plans to leave his wife and move in with her. Okay, so the last story we'll tell you from Kelly's two hours of testimony is an interesting one. And it occurred on December 28th of 2005, the day after the bodies of Michelle and Stephen had been found. Cooper was sitting on their computer and turned to Kelly and said he was looking for a song online by Richard Marks called Hold On to the Night. This was kind of chilling admission for Kelly because she had sent lyrics to the song to Stephen prior to he and Michelle were killed. So this is interesting, and here's why. So during the course of the investigation, Kelly was fully cooperating and agreed to turn over all of her text messages to police, except when she went to hand her phone over, all of her texts had been deleted. So now at that time, I'm sure this made Kelly look bad. Maybe the police were thinking, wow, Kelly deleted all of her texts. But it seems as though the truth was that Cooper had likely gone through her texts, seen that she had sent these lyrics to Stephen and ultimately deleted the texts. 
And it's probably how he learned of the relationship between Kelly and Stephen. And the theory was that once Cooper found out that Stephen and Kelly had met at their office for sex on the 26th, he had had enough. And then on the 28th, when Kelly is probably really upset about the murder of Stephen, he's like dropping these little hints. He, he makes like a jab with this Richard Marks thing, kind of letting her know he knows without being explicit about it. I guess Steve and Kelly had been together that day before and Fred found out or he had been suspicious or knew, but then that was the final straw. So he came that night and he rode a motorcycle. So what the backpack ended up being was a helmet bag. He parked his motorcycle at the church. We had this big field and a park behind us and there was a church there and he had parked there and walked across the field. And one of our other neighbors was out there with her dogs who started barking at him and she could make him out just because of the streetlights, but not clearly, but she knew she could see that he was the camo. He had a camo jacket on and she watched him walk in the neighborhood. She said a few minutes later, three boys came out but she was far enough away. She didn't know one was Ben. Remember, Ben is Lisa's son, who would soon testify at trial. And then just a minute later, he came back out and ended up walking behind the houses. I guess he figured, okay, there's just too many people around. (laughs) A little too active. So he came in behind the houses and they think he waited till Steve and Michelle went to sleep and he got in their slider. What Lisa is referencing are the downstairs sliding glass doors that all of the homes were outfitted with. We found out later our sliders on our houses could be popped very easily if they were locked. They think he was just planning on killing Steve, but I don't know how you shoot someone with their wife in bed. And what they think happened was he killed Steve and she woke up and struggled. She was very athletic and and he ended up killing her, beating her. But I think she was beaten to death. Not I think I know. So as Lisa explained in her interview, the prosecution believed Cooper drove his yellow Kawasaki to the crime scene, shot Steve, and beat and strangled Michelle. But what evidence did they have to support this? Well, there was surveillance evidence. They had surveillance footage from a gas station. And in fact, Kelly had been shown stills from this footage and she identified Cooper as the person in the images. It was clear as day she could see his camo jacket, his motorcycle, and his helmet. And the prosecution could even explain how Cooper found out where Michelle and Stephen lived. When law enforcement conducted a search warrant on the home Cooper and Kelly shared, they found an employee contact sheet that Kelly kept close to the computer that she and Cooper shared. And that contact sheet contained Stephen's address and phone number. And on top of that, the place where Cooper and Kelly lived was also a gated community. And there was a record of Cooper and his motorcycle returning to this gated community at 3 a.m., hours after the police believed that the murders occurred. And if there wasn't already enough evidence stacked against Cooper, the eyewitnesses who had seen a man who resembled him the night of and the morning after the murders also testified. And if you recall, one of those eyewitnesses was Ben, the son and brother of our first degrees, Lisa and Meg. And each of the eyewitnesses described a white man who was roughly six feet in height, with short, dark hair, wearing a camo jacket. I thought I'm just going to have such a hard time sitting there listening to him up on that stand. Actually, the court TV people were like, hey, we're going to put it on live screen out here. So they gave me headphones and they gave me this great seat. So 
So my husband and Meg went in for Ben and I stayed outside, but I heard the whole thing and watched it, but I just didn't want to get emotional in there. You know, it's your, it's your child. He did well, just answered his questions. He was up on the stand for about, oh, I don't know, two minutes, said what he saw, did his thing. They went, they moved on. Here's Meg. I didn't personally see him that night, but just from everybody that I talked to, he was so calm walking in the neighborhood and he waited. So that's always what's been weird to me is he was able to sit there and wait. You know, usually if you're mad, you react on the spot. That's usually a little bit more understandable, but he waited like in the bushes for hours. More damning testimony included a co-worker of Cooper's who worked at a motorcycle repair shop with him. He said the detectives visited the shop and questioned Cooper. After that, Cooper left the shop. He came back with his camo jacket and he started rigorously cleaning it. And he actually cut a piece of the mesh lining out of it. And remember, this is the jacket he was thought to be wearing on the night of the murders, the jacket that the eyewitnesses saw him wearing. And finally, there was testimony about the DNA and blood evidence. Blood was found on one of Cooper's shoes. Whose blood? The tests were inconclusive. A foot peg from Cooper's Kawasaki motorcycle also had blood on it. Michelle's nightgown had been tested, and Cooper's DNA was found on this nightgown. Then the swabbings from Michelle's right hand and right fingernails also revealed Cooper's DNA. And remember, when Cooper was brought in for questioning, police observed what appeared to be scratches on his forearms, which looked like defensive wounds, which makes sense and would explain how his DNA ended up under her right hand. So clearly, there's a mountain of evidence that seems to implicate Cooper in these murders. So the prosecution is probably feeling pretty good. And the DNA under Michelle's fingernails were the most damning of all. Cooper claimed to not know about the affair at all. He, he claimed that when he was questioned, it was the first time he ever heard about it. So Michelle and Cooper should never have been in contact. So how exactly would Cooper's defense explain the presence of this DNA? Well, the answer to that will undoubtedly shock and horrify you. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. We left off as the prosecution rested after demonstrating all of the damning evidence they had against Cooper. In the world, well, Court TV, watched with bated breath to find out how the defense would explain how Cooper's DNA would be found under Michelle's fingernails. And the theory that the defense was putting forth was not only jaw-dropping, but it was pretty fucking gross. When asked to explain the presence of the DNA under Michelle's nails, Cooper said that there was a very reasonable explanation for why it was found there. And it was because he and Stephen's wife, Michelle, were having a consensual sexual relationship to get back at Kelly and Stephen. And this is so surreal. Cooper claimed that he and Michelle had sex on December 26th, the same night that Kelly and Stephen met for sex at the office and just hours before the murders occurred. And he said this also explained why Cooper had the address and was seen on surveillance video. And according to him, this just explained everything. And he went so far as to say that Michelle had been the one to initiate contact with him after she uncovered evidence of the affair in her relationship. He said that they had had sex outside in, in the driveway to get back at their their boyfriend and, and you know, their, it was his girlfriend. They weren't married. And then their spouse, you know, to get back at them for having an affair. 
he and Michelle did that. That was his story on why he had DNA. Okay, so this is all pretty disgusting, and there's a ton to unpack here. So first of all, fuck this guy for dragging Michelle through the mud after he already took her life. It is so disgusting, and especially because she's not here to defend herself anymore. And second of all, we have to note that Cooper's defense is in direct conflict with his original statement. In part two, when they first brought Cooper in for questioning, he denied knowing that his girlfriend Kelly was having an affair at all. In fact, he said that he was learning about it on the spot at the sheriff's department in real time. So Cooper is lying at some point in the story. So when is it? No matter what evidence the prosecution threw at Cooper, his defense seemed to have an answer, an explanation. The defense wounds on Cooper's arms, those pesky little things, simple explanation. They're common motorcycle mechanic injuries. They always get their arms cut up under those bikes or whatever. Plus, none of Cooper's prints were found on the glass door he allegedly entered through. In fact, other than the DNA on Michelle, there was no other physical evidence connecting Cooper to the scene. Yeah, not to the scene, but again, his DNA was on Michelle. So the fact that it's not found in the home is kind of moot. So it's no doubt that this was a riveting trial, a mountain of evidence against Stephen in a really salacious and infuriating insensitive defense. But the real circus was actually going on behind the scenes with the jurors who had been sequestered through the duration of the trial. Our first degree Lisa found out about everything you're about to hear from her friend, Officer Tracy Gaydash. You remember Tracy. We've talked about her in part one and two. She was the deputy who was first called to the scene, who lived in the same gated community as Stephen and Michelle. And it turns out that while the day's testimony continued, there was some debauchery going on with the jurors. And here's Lisa on that. Tracy knew, you know, she knows a lot of the bails from the people because they had them sequestered so they couldn't leave the hotel. But they kept saying how ridiculous this, these jurors were. That they're like, see you tomorrow, not like, like letting them know we're not coming up with a verdict because we're having a great time. See you tomorrow night. Have the have the wine chilled, or you know, they say the stupidest things. Drinking every night, running up and down the hallways. The defense got a few, you know, morons who were just there for a good time. And it gets worse. One had gotten a crush on him. I gotten this crush on Fred Cooper? Yep. One of the jurors had apparently fallen for Fred Cooper. After both the prosecution and defense had finished calling witnesses, they rested. And it was time for the jury to deliberate. These jurors deliberated for most of four days, 32 and a half hours to be exact. And when they returned, they declared they couldn't come to unanimous verdict at 9 p.m. on the fourth day. The judge knew he was guilty and it was making him crazy, but they ended up having to declare a mistrial because they couldn't come to an agreement. Many people believe that this juror, who essentially fell in love with Fred Cooper from the jury box, is one of the primary reasons a unanimous verdict couldn't be reached. When the judge declared a mistrial, Fred Cooper had no reaction. Just feet away from him sat the mother of Stephen Andrews in disbelief. Michelle Andrews' parents weren't in the courtroom when the mistrial was announced. Prosecutors didn't miss a beat and immediately began preparations to try Cooper for a second time. A second trial meant that Lisa's son, Ben, would have to testify yet again. The judge immediately moved it to St. Pete. 
to get a new jury and get it out of Fort Myers. So then we drove up to St. Pete, and that time I stayed in the courtroom. So as far as the second trial is concerned, much of the testimony was the same. But there were a few glaring differences. Let's start with Kelly Ballou, Cooper's girlfriend and Stephen's mistress. In the first trial, Kelly seems wish-washy in terms of her stance on Cooper's guilt. The first trial in Fort Myers, Kelly didn't really... She was just... I think she knew he was guilty. She knew he was going to be be found guilty. So she was trying to keep herself as much out of it as she could, like not turn against him so much because she didn't think that she needed to. And, you know, well, then it was not guilty. That second trial, she like basically said, oh, I know he killed him. Like she didn't give him an alibi. Not that she had originally, but at first it's like, oh, I don't know. And then she's like, oh, no, she also remembered some things that she hadn't on the first go around. Another thing with the second trial, remember how when Lisa's son, Ben, took the stand, it was a very easy round of questioning by the defense? Well, not this time. They hammered Ben about the description of the man who he saw walking the night Michelle and Stephen were killed. The man Ben believed to be Fred Cooper. So this time, the defense attorneys went after Ben. He was involved in this for about a minute, you know, coming out of our house walking. They badgered him and just and the judge kept going continue he's already answered that continue and you know they'd say well how do you know it was a backpack and Ben said it had two straps and a pack I've carried one since kindergarten you know I mean it was just like Ben kept responding and then they'd say well how do you know it was him and Ben said I'm looking at it Ben's sister Meg was there watching this all unfold the biggest thing between the first and second trial was kind of the confidence build, especially like my brother and his two friends that testified. Like the first trial, they were younger, a little bit nervous. And by the second trial, I mean, they were ready to fry this guy and they were a lot more confident in their answers. I'm pretty sure my brother's testi- like testimony went up about 45 minutes the second trial because Fred Cooper's defense was doing literally anything they could to get a slip up out of anybody to the point where like the judge was like, you need to stop badgering. They asked him, I think like 10 questions about the backpack to the point where my brother was like a backpack. It has a pack on the back with two straps. You wear it on your back. And it was just like, they were doing anything they could. Following testimony from both sides, the jury once again left the courtroom to deliberate. The first trial was declared a mistrial because one of the jurors fell in love with him. And then the second trial, it was like a quick deliberation. Guilty. Guilty. Finally, there'd be some semblance of justice for the families of Michelle and Stephen Andrews. But the sad truth was that a conviction would never bring back the parents of Lucas Andrews, the child who was found at the crime scene clutching a phone and wearing bloody socks. And although Cooper was found guilty, he still has never confessed to this day. Fred Cooper was handed three life sentences for his crimes. He has made appeal attempts, all of which have been denied. But unfortunately for all who followed this case closely, many big questions continue to loom. The questions that we'll just likely never have answers to. The first being, why did Cooper kill Michelle so violently when Stephen, the man that was alleged to be the true target of Cooper's rage, 
received a gunshot wound to the head while he was asleep. Here's Meg. It, it never made sense. It was weird how much anger he took out on her. It honestly never made sense, the rage towards Michelle. And here's Lisa. They could tell by, you know, the blood pattern and all that, that it had been a very, it was a hard-fought battle. And, um, but she was brutally beaten. Like, you go into his house and you, and, and then, like, you kill Michelle. What was her, like, she was just as much a victim as he was, as Fred. I mean, he was, she was just as much as of a victim. It was, it, so it's like, why would, why did you kill her? That's the one thing I've always wondered, like, what made him kill her too? Then there's this other looming question of this 911 call. Why would Cooper risk coming back to the scene the following morning to call 911? Here's Meg on this too. To show compassion after and come back the next morning to call 911, because I think he probably like was like, oh, I'm a parent. I'm going to help this little kid. Because he easily, I mean, could have hurt the kid if he wanted to. But, you know, he came back and made sure that there was help. So... I think the only thing that really came into play as far as compassion was him having his own child. Stephen made a mistake in engaging in the affair, but he never deserved to be hurt or worse killed. And Michelle, she was innocent in all of this. He made a mistake, but really, like, it wasn't that it wasn't worth him losing his life over. It's it, and. And then you leave this little boy orphan. I mean, we were as parents, we were because they were so much younger than us. We were just couldn't even imagine. And it just goes to show you never know what's going on behind closed doors. So it was just, you know, you never know, because if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, my gosh, no, they're so happy. They're just the sweetest couple. And they were when they were together. They were just a super sweet couple. A huge, huge thank you to Lisa and Meg for being our first series for the past three episodes. If you're listening out there and you have a story you would like to tell, please email us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. No story is too small. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook page by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are almost to 10,000 members in our Facebook group. It's so exciting. And uh, stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that, that close. <laughs> nope. Be- such a beautiful, beautiful sound. It's pretty beautiful. Thanks, everyone. Happy Cheese Day. Ooh, go have a cheese board or just melt some cheese. Some queso, even. Yes. Delightful. Gracias. Mm. Adios. Shout out to Jared Monaco for sound design and for creating original music for The First Degree. Our producing team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode include Naples Daily News, The Cape Coral Breeze, The Star Tribune, Court Documents, and as always, our First Degree guests are always our largest source. Bye. 
Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries a state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Killing Time. Now, when we record these episodes, we record through this um, program called Zencaster, which records our audio flawlessly. But then we also have a Zoom open so we can kind of like see each other and have some sort of a semblance of a visual thing. But Billy somehow doesn't have internet in his house right now. So he's not on Zoom. So he's kind of just a ghost in the background right now, right? Yeah, I'm he's just bit. lurking in the ethers of sound. <laughs> I mean, I could, be, I could be in your closet. You have no idea where I am right now. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of creepy, Billy. I don't like it. I like being able to see your voice and matching it to your sound. Not see just, my voice. I yes. like to see your voice. <laughs> well, no, because like you, it's just it's different when you can't see somebody. So this I just agree. it feels yeah. it feels wrong. But why don't you have internet, Billy? Because I don't have, I, I'm in a location that does not have internet right now. So I'm using a hotspot, which I never used before. I actually had to call up AT&T and get my phone hooked up to being a hotspot. Oh, I didn't so, even know that you can do that. I'm used to this because Alexis literally time, where, yeah. wherever I am, Billy's just looming around me. So like, this is just normal. <laughs> even when he's gone, the presence of him just looms over your shoulder, like a dark body of nothingness but nothingness (laughs) it's like wherever i go there he is (laughs) (laughs) i i don't envy you alexis i have to say um 
So for this killing time, we I'm going back to some of our Facebook questions. But before we start, I feel like it's been a while. I want to know what you guys are watching right now because it's the new year. I feel like people, it's it's a whole new year of being bored and having to find something to watch. So what have you guys been watching on TV recently? I'm re-watching The Sopranos since episode one, which oh, yeah. I, I think I've mentioned, which I'm loving so, so much. I'm in season four. And then when I'm not watching that, I watch 90 Day Fiance or Married at First Sight. And when I'm not watching that, Something I started lighter. Yeah, I started The Night Stalker, but I haven't finished it. Um, I was going to ask you, Billy, have you seen The Night Stalker documentary? I saw I saw the first episode. Okay, I Jared and I just finished it last night. It was so well done and the cinematography for it was fucking awesome. Um I didn't really know too much about I didn't realize that Richard Ramirez had like zero MO and that must have been so my parents lived obviously in Mission Viejo and he struck in Mission Viejo and they talk about it was like the most terrifying night of their entire lives because you just don't know yeah yeah especially I mean just switching up murder weapons switching up demographics of victims which just there was he was so um unruly in his his victimology and, and everything that you just, you could not anticipate what he was going to do. And that's the scariest part. Oh, so t- he was such a, ugh, ugh, just Deranged. thinking about him. Deranged. And he's just disgusting. And everybody describes his smell. Ew. That has just got to be the grossest thing in the entire world. But the documentary was, um, was really well done. I just remember Alexis, do you remember listening to the last podcast on the left about him? Vaguely. Who did they do some they do crazy really, impression about him? Yeah. Well, because you know he gets caught, he leaves to go visit his brother in Arizona, and that's when they find they ID him, and then his picture is everywhere. So he left not only having sketches of him done. And then when he came back from vacay, he it, he was over every single newspaper. So last podcast is a really funny. Henry does an impression of him. He's like, you know, when you've been vacationing and then you got to get back on the grind about him coming back. <laughs> it's so really, funny. it's, it's a must impress- listen to. Billy, what have you, what, sorry. Uh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I don't listen to that podcast that much anymore. I should, but um, their impressions were always my favorite part of that podcast. Yeah. So good. It was all Henry. He's so it was funny. All, all Henry. His, all Henry. his Charles Manson amazing. impression was what <laughs> hooked me in the beginning, too. It was so his, good. His BTK is what got me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when he was like, the Grote Phantom, I'll never forget it. Like, I'll never forget all of BTK's suggested monikers because of how funny that was. <laughs> oh, my God. They just fucking dropped. They kept calling him a fucking nerd. Mm-hmm. It was either a nerd or a dork. And I just think that's so funny because you know that. BTK would hate nothing more than being called a nerd. No, because he thought he was so badass. Yeah. He was you're just not, a, a dude. There's Flash. You're not. You're not. Um, Billy, what have you been watching on the on the, the on the television? I I had to uh because we were we were covering Nexium on Murder Squad. And um, so I binged like both of those series and it, 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 there's such a stark contrast. I don't know if Alexis, I know you're, you're bored with Nexium, but the difference between the HBO and the stars was night and day because the stars yeah. one did not pull any punches and HBO was very, very timid. 
Yeah, well, I heard that the Stars one is way better. Right? The HBO one dragged. It dra- I'm like, it is. There's still more episodes of this, and it's so slow moving. I'm like, you guys got to cut this down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I listen. I think they were going for the, the slow burn, which is okay. But I think that you know when you watch just the 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 awfulness and the debauchery and, and the sickness that this guy had put on everybody, it doesn't come through in the HBO doc as it does in the Stars one. Great. But the HBO doc is done better, but it's just like not storytelling wise though. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I know. I need to watch mm-hmm. that Stars one, but yeah, I got like burnt out because that do- the. HBO one was too long. I'm like, just mm-hmm. give it to me in a shorter amount of time so I'm not <laughs> sick of this subject because it's such an interesting. And if anybody hasn't listened to our episode about Nexium, you need to go back and listen to it. Yeah, I can't um, watch things about the same thing. I can't consume things about the same subject over and over. I listened to Escaping Nexium, the Wondery podcast, and I liked it. And we talked to the guy who did that on our Nexium episode. Yeah. I can't watch anymore. Like I, I tried to watch. I'm like, this is so. I know everything already. I know, and especially like, yeah, no, I couldn't watch either of them. I'm really burnt out on Nexium. Yeah, no, no more Nexium. Um, I did watch the 2020 on John Bonet recently. It's so funny. There's, it's so interesting how there's resurgences of certain things, and especially in our Facebook page, and even in the Lady Gang Facebook group, it's all like, what do you think? John Benet, John Benet. But what does everybody think? I watched the new documentary and I'm like, oh my God. It's number one, it's the same shit over and over and over and over and over again. Well, we're gonna is see it not more and different? more John Benet is it stuff. Different? Like, is it 2020 worth watching or do I know it already? So it's it's done from the perspective of one of the detectives who really um, believed in the intruder theory. So it actually does give weight to that theory instead of being like, it was Burke and the parents and mm-hmm. the easy way out, you know? Yeah. Um, so it did, but it didn't, I don't think it dove deep enough into it. It, it only really just kind of mentioned it, but uh-huh. I think it mentioned it enough to start a conversation where people are like, oh... So good. It's all, we all, if you know enough about that case, like I feel like m- probably most of our listeners do, you're not learning anything new. It's only probably for the casual dabbler, of John Bonet da- dabbler, a John Bonet dabbler. So, um, did you watch it, Billy? I did not watch it. No, but I do know the 25th anniversary is coming up. So there's going to be a lot of. Oh, a lot of what? stuff coming up. And I, I know of, of one of them that's potentially in the works and they're trying to work on some things with DNA. So, oh, uh, you know, and, you know, listen, I, I will hand it to the guys from True Crime Garage and and you oh, yeah. too for, for saying to listen to that one, because they did make a very compelling case for the for the intruder theory. I they mean, they really definitely did. did. Well, because also they had nothing. I'm assuming probably obviously you guys know this better because you do true crime TV, but like. Do networks have their arms kind of tied behind their back for certain things about speculating and stuff like that? For example, in the JonBenet case, or is it they just don't want to dive into it? Do you think it just depends? Because seriously, if you look at the CBS uh, series that did JonBenet, I mean, they got sued oh by Burke <laughs> by a lot. So, like, is their hands tied? No, they're taking a huge risk, and sometimes they pay for that. You know what I mean? Well, um, and and generally, cases that are twenty five years old, they'll allow people to take 
many more liberties than if it was something unfolding in real time. So it really right. just depends. That CBS documentary <laughs> about that was horrible. Really unethical. I hated it. I couldn't even get through I it. Mean, it- and it, was, yeah. it was primetime CBS too. That's the thing. It's like, that's what you, and there hadn't been like a real big primetime not connected to a Dateline or a 48 Hours. This was, this was standing on its own, a primetime special on a network. There haven't been that many of those in true crime. And for them to come right. out with that, I mean, they built the entire house pretty much. Remember that? I mean, in a, in a wherever they were. And, in then, a short- and then remember they had all those little boys hitting that, the head with the hand or the, with the um, awful. Oh my God, flashlight. It was just so distasteful the way that they did that. I just remember because that was a while ago that they did that way before I've gotten this much into true crime. And I remember watching it being like, holy shit, this is it just doesn't feel right that the way that they it did that felt really, really wrong. Yeah, I really didn't uh, like that. Well, this one does like a little bit. It's more of a leveled, I guess. Um, perspective of mm-hmm. kind of weighing the two things but again i didn't learn anything new um well we're gonna end this killing time soon because we all know this episode was it was very robust but i will just tell everybody that i am watching bling empire bling empire on netflix and it is fantastic what's it about real quick um it's pretty much like crazy rich asians the tv show mm-hmm. and it's so good it <gasps> is so bingeable um and i love it fuck yeah highly All recommend right. highly recommend all right well i think we killed enough time let's call we sure it did 11 minutes 19 seconds beep 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 addiction plays hardball he would hit me with these verbal attacks i just said to him i love you so much you're such an amazing person i can't take this ride anymore It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.